Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm, uh, I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm Chief Executive at the RSA. Um, delighted to welcome you to this afternoon's special event. Can you make sure your mobile phone is uh, set to uh, silent? Um, we're filming today's event, live streaming over the web. So welcome to everyone who's joining us online. The hashtag, if you want to join in the conversation online or in this room, is RSA Rescue. Now, housekeeping notice is over. It's my great pleasure to welcome today's distinguished guest speaker and friend of mine, David Miliband. David is president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, a humanitarian organization based in New York, which was formed in 1933 at the request of Albert Einstein to offer support to refugees fleeing Nazi Germany. At the IRC today, David oversees the agency's relief operations in more than 40 war-affected countries and its refugee resettlement and assistance program in 28 US cities. Of course, prior to his move to New York, David was a prominent political figure here in the UK. He was MP for South Shields for 12 years, a leading light of both the Blair and Brown administrations, as Minister for Schools, Environment Secretary, and from 2007 to 2010 as Foreign Secretary, representing the UK and driving advances in human rights throughout the world. David joins us today to share the lessons he's learned from his work at the IRC, as well as his time in politics and government, and to reflect on his own family story as a son of refugees. His message, encapsulated in his new book, rescue, refugees and the political crisis of our time, is to call on us all to recognise that, overwhelming as the current crisis may appear, there is positive practical action that we can take to meet the challenge, both as governments with the power to change policy and as citizens with the urge to change lives. After Dave has spoken, um, I will be asking him some questions about the book and some broader questions, and then we'll open it up to you before we finish promptly at two o'clock. So, without further ado, let's get started. Please join me in welcoming David Miliband. Um, is it okay for our telecasters if I stay here? Go I have to go to the Sorry. lectern, okay. <laughs> I will do what I'm told. So. Hello to our online audience uh, at the, uh, who can now see me because I'm at the lectern, and hello to all of you. Thank you very much for giving up some time to come and talk. I'm going to just talk for 10 or 15 minutes about uh, the book uh, and really cover three main topics. First of all, what is the refugee crisis? How should we understand the refugee crisis? Uh, secondly, what can we do about the refugee crisis? Because the central theme of the book is that this is a crisis which is manageable, not insoluble. And thirdly, what does the refugee crisis tell us about a wider set of questions confronting the Western world uh, as it addresses the inequalities, the insecurities, the unsustainabilities of this phase of globalization? Because it was really important to me when I was writing the book that I brought out something more than a simple policy guide to the refugee crisis. This is partly about my own personal family history, partly about the lessons that I've learned in my professional life. But there's also a bigger argument, which I think, which I think I, I, what I want to take to a wider audience, which is that the way the world deals with refugees is a bellwether for the way it deals with a range of other problems of global public goods, challenges of how we handle global public goods from the environment to trade to security, etc. Just to start with the refugee crisis, there are 65 million people who are displaced from their homes by conflict or persecution around the world today. These are not people who are leaving their homes for economic reasons. 
These are people classified as refugees or internally displaced, and I'll come to the distinction in a moment. But these are people for whom war or persecution is forcing them to leave their homes rather than economic need leading them to choose to leave their homes. Uh, the 65 million would be the 21st largest country in the world. It's one in every 110 people on the planet. 25 million of those people who are forced to flee their homes cross a border, and it's not safe for them to return. That makes them a refugee. 40 million are internally displaced. And if you think about Syria, that's the poster child for the modern refugee crisis. Five and a half million people leaving Syria, going into neighboring states, and sometimes further afield into Europe. Seven and a half million Syrians displaced within their own country. So we see, we in the work at the International Rescue Committee, we see those people in Aleppo, in Idlib, in Raqqa. There are 1,200 IRC staff working today inside Syria. But we also see them in Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq. And we see them on the transit routes to Europe, in Greece, and in uh, Italy. And we then see them um, sometimes in the work that we do in resettlement in the US, although much less than before. I'll come back to that. Um, but here's the point I want to make to you today, that this is a crisis not simply because of the numbers of people who are being displaced by war and persecution. I want you to understand three things about the modern refugee crisis that mean it's about more than scale. It's, if it was just record numbers of people being displaced by war and persecution from their homes, then the old policy answers of short-term help in refugee camps until people went home might be adequate. But what I want to put to you is that we're living in a new kind of refugee and displacement crisis. Number one, the average length of displacement is not six months or six years, it's 10 years. And when someone has been a refugee for five years, the average length of displacement is 21 years. I, I, this came home to me when I went to what was then the world's largest refugee camp in Dadaab in eastern Kenya. It was built for Somali refugees in 1992-93 as a quote-unquote temporary camp. And I met this woman called Silo. She was, uh, her, her quote-unquote home was a, a round shack. And she had three kids, one of them wearing an Obama T-shirt, and I said to Silo, do you think you will ever go back to Somalia? It seemed like a reasonable question. In fact, it was the height of naivety, because she looked at me and furrowed her brow, and she said, what do you mean go back to Somalia? I was born here. And then I asked the camp management, of the 300,000 people then living in Dadaab, how many were born in the camp? 100,000. So number one, long-term displacement changes the equation from how do we help people survive to we, how do we help people thrive. Uh, second uh, aspect, uh, the number of times I'm asked, well, you must work, what do you do in refugee camps? And the first thing I always say to people is 60% of refugees are not in camps. They're in urban areas. The iconic image of a refugee, which is someone in a refugee camp, is actually not is a caricature in the sense that it's not true. Uh, the, the, ur the urban refugee experience in Beirut, in Istanbul, in Difa, in uh, Niger, uh, in uh, Kinshasa, in uh, a range of the, the countries that are hosting refugees, the, the urban refugee experience is typical, not atypical. And so that changes the equation. What do, in a refugee camp, you're, you're effectively guaranteed the most basic health care, the most basic food distribution. In an urban area, you're not. So the needs of 
refugees and displaced people in urban settings are different from in um, camp uh, settings. Third really important thing to, to understand, the refugee law was fashioned after the Second World War and most refugees were in Europe. Today, the top 10 refugee hosting countries are not rich countries, but are poor and lower middle income countries. The top 10 refugee hosting countries account for 2.5% of global income. So Uganda, average income last time I looked, or when I was there in June, $942 per person per year, has a million refugees who've arrived over the last year from South Sudan. Bangladesh has received 600,000, 650,000 refugees from Myanmar in the last nine weeks. Uh, Bangladesh is a lower middle income country or even a low income country, not a high income country. And so the, when people say, oh, there's a European refugee crisis, people in Africa or in the Middle East, they laugh. They say, no, it's an African refugee crisis or a Middle Eastern refugee crisis. Y you don't understand what a real crisis is. And so I, I want you to have a sense that the challenge we're dealing with is not about peddling the humanitarian bicycle faster. It's about redesigning the vehicle for how we help people thrive in new sets of conditions. So second thing I just want to talk a little bit about is what, why, why is this crisis manageable? How is this crisis manageable? And the fundamental point is we have to end the fiction that these are, this is a short-term crisis. The fiction is convenient for Western aid donors because it means they can give emergency aid on six-month or 12-month rations. We're, we're, I'm running now a $730 million, $750 million organization. We've got 17,000 employees and 10,000 volunteers in 196 field sites in, in the 30-plus countries that Matthew mentioned. But the average length of a grant is 11 months, and we're managing about 500 different government grants on that $750 million budget, so the average size of a government grant is low single-digit millions. And we're trying, essentially, to solve long-term problems with short-term answers, and that's the problem. What does it mean to shift from short-term uh, to long-term? I think four things are really absolutely imperative. The first, in a way it's obvious, what is it that refugees lack most? Well, cash. The assumption is that people need tents or people need food. Actually, if you're an urban refugee, what you need is cash to be able to pay your rent. If you've got kids and half of all the world's refugees are kids, and I'll come back to that. What you need is often the ability to pay, if not the school fee, then the requirement that you buy pencils and paper and books for your kids to be able to go to school. So shifting the model of aid towards, it'll never be 100% cash, but to have a much greater preponderance of cash delivery is, that, is, is core. There's an obvious reason for that. It's empowering for refugees to be given cash that they choose how to spend, but think about something else. What's one of the greatest challenges we face? That host populations in poor countries feel resentful towards refugees who are arriving. The age of mortality in the part of Kenya that hosted that Dadaab refugee camp that I mentioned was lower outside the camp than inside the camp. And so one of the striking things about giving cash to refugees is that they then spend it in local shops and there's benefit to the local community. We did a study in Lebanon in 2014. For every $100 that's spent, that's given to a refugee, $215 circulates in the local economy. So cash first is the principle. At the moment, only 6% of the global humanitarian budget goes on cash distribution. Second thing, I mentioned half of the world's refugees are children. 
but less than 2% of the global humanitarian budget goes on education. I mean, that is not just morally abhorrent, it's strategically stupid. There are 250,000 Syrian kids in Lebanon today who've had no education for six years. And we are storing up a tinderbox of resentment and fury. And not just in the obvious ways. We're, we're very um, active on the education scene, not just teaching literacy and numeracy. The biggest learning is that the toxic stress, the trauma that these children have gone through massively inhibits their ability to learn. And unless they are given the social and emotional resources to be able to learn, then they're not going to be able to become the kind of healthy adults that we need. And so happens I'm going back to New York this afternoon, but uh, in part or in, in the main, because um, on Monday we are competing in the final four of the MacArthur Foundation competition to win $100 million to solve a quote-unquote big global problem. And we're dedicating that. Our pitch is to address toxic stress among refugee children in the Middle East, which we think we can develop a model that will not just reduce toxic stress, but actually reverse some of the effects of it. And if we can do it in the Middle East, we think we can do it around the world. Um, it would be a genuinely landmark intervention. We're doing it with Sesame Street, who have Sesame Foundation, who have a lot of experience, obviously not just with American kids, but kids uh, around the world. So education, but education understood as giving children the social and emotional resources to be able to thrive. Third, very difficult issue is about employment. In most countries, refugees aren't allowed to work. So what do they do? They work in the informal economy, which carries all sorts of burdens and challenges with it. Uh, which is the poster child for good behavior on this? Not many people guess this. Uh, Uganda. Uh, Uganda gives every refugee who arrives a plot of land. It was 50 square meters. It's now 30 because they've got so many refugees. It gives them the right to work. It gives them uh, services for their kids. Uh, and what's the product? In the 2014 study in Kampala, the capital of Uganda, 97% of the refugees didn't need humanitarian aid because they were working. Uh, the family, the, the, the stories make you weep. The, a woman who spoke to me in uh, June about the extraordinary abuse that she'd suffered in um, South Sudan. She came south to Uganda. She uh, got a job, or she, she, she created a business, actually, with a small loan that we gave her in a banana ripening business. She buys the bananas unripe. She, we help her rent a little shack. She ripens the bananas. She then sells the bananas at a 50% markup. And when I spoke to her, I said, well, what do you do with the money? She said, well, I part pay my rent, and I also paid the school fees for my daughter. She said, you want to meet my daughter? I said, yeah, definitely. I meet the daughter. The daughter has graduated from high school. She's at Kampala University. I say, what do you want to do? She says, I'm, I'm studying public health, and I want to go back to Uganda. To, uh, I want to go back to South Sudan to help rebuild the health system. And obviously, not every story is like that, but the potential of people to not just have dignity but make a contribution to themselves, their own family, and their own uh, country and region is, is huge. It's only going to be possible, though, to give refugees the chance to work if the countries that are hosting them get massive economic support. I mean, to take Jordan as an example, it's a small country, 7.5 million people. It's got 650,000 Syrian refugees in it. It's on an IMF program. Its debt has gone from 50% to 90% of GDP since the refugees uh, arrived. It's got 30% or so youth unemployment problem among its own population. The only way the Jordanian government can 
say to its own people, we're going to issue work permits to Syrians, is to say we're going to get a dividend for our own population, for, for, for the Jordanian population. So it means big change in the way the World Bank <coughs> operates, the IMF operates. Um, final thing, I, I, we can maybe come back to questions. Refugee resettlement in Western countries. Uh, Britain takes very, very few refugees, shamefully few. President Trump is reducing, slashing, really, the number of refugees who are allowed to come to America. And people often say to me, and sometimes President Trump doesn't say it to me, but he says it uh, publicly, we don't need to take refugees here in our own country because it's cheaper to support them in their own region. And anyway, we want them eventually to go back to Syria, so isn't it better to help them there? And there are two important answers to that. One is that... Some of the, most, the only refugees who are entitled to resettlement in the West, which means the organized transfer of uh, refugees from one country to another, the only people who are entitled to uh, that are the most vulnerable. So these are people who have been victims of torture, who are um, unable to um, fend for themselves, who need medical help, who are often widowed. Uh, but secondly, there is a symbolic value as well as a substantive value in standing with countries that are hosting refugees. What message does it give to Jordan that the US or Britain or anyone else is turning its back on people who we're saying Jordan has to look after? So there's a, a resettlement element. Let me just finish, though. The third thing I just wanted to talk a bit about is um, the wider illumination that the refugee issue brings to the travails of globalization and how we manage this interconnected, chaotic uh, world. And I, I do think that you can trace the confidence and engagement of Western countries with global problems through the way in which refugees are supported. Um, refugees weren't counted and did not count until after the Second World War. Uh, after the Second World War, the uh, United Nations High uh, the United Nations um, uh, Convention was passed, then the Convention on Refugees in 1951. Um, it was extended in 1967. And what was it the product of? It was the product of an extraordinary meeting, which I didn't really know enough about until I started working on this book. In Newfoundland in 1941, Churchill and Roosevelt met. This was four months before the US entered the war. And what did they discuss? Not the conduct of the war, but the framing of the post-war peace. And it was a bitter pill for Churchill to swallow because core to the Atlantic Charter was the idea and the pledge that the war was not being fought for territorial gain and that actually the countries of the British Empire would be able to get their independence. But it also said that if we don't build a world order of justice and security, we will not have stability. We cannot repeat the mistakes of the interwar period. And it was out of the Atlantic Charter that the United Nations was born. It was out of the United Nations that the rights of refugees were born. And I see a real threat that in the microcosm of the, attack, of the assault on refugees, the trashing of the rights of refugees, we're actually seeing a trashing of Western history, of Western responsibility, and of Western strategic interest. And I know that the term the West, quote unquote, has a lot of baggage associated with it. Western countries have made a lot of mistakes. But there's a really fantastic quotation from Joschka Fischer, who was the German foreign minister um, in the early 2000s. And he called the Atlantic Charter the birth certificate of the West. And the significance of that phrase is that the West is not a geographic concept, it's a political concept. 
And at the heart of that political concept is the commitment, sometimes honored in the breach, sometimes honored appropriately, is the commitment to uphold the rights and the dignities of the individual. There, are, there is only a commitment to international humanitarian rights, human rights, because of the Atlantic Charter. And what's interesting about the foundation of the UN is it obviously brought together democracies and dictatorships, capitalist economies, communist countries, but driving at the center of it was this commitment to the dignity and humanity of the individual. Refugees were some of the beneficiaries, but other, others benefited too. And in the fight for the rights of refugees, I think there is a fight for the values that will underpin the global system. And we can, we can see today what happens when globalization is too unequal, too insecure, too unsustainable for its own good. Refugees are some of the victims of that, but not the only victims of that. But what I say here is that if we cannot stand up for the rights of the greatest victims of the abuse of power, then how are we going to be able to stand up for a globalization that is humane and fair for the rest of us? And so in that sense, I hope that you, if you get the chance to read the book, I hope you, I hope you will. I hope for every copy that you buy, one pound 25 goes to the International Rescue Committee. Um, for some reason, if you buy it in the American edition, $2.25 goes to the uh, IRC, and I think that's an old exchange rate. That's a pre-Brexit exchange rate rather than a uh, post-Brexit uh, exchange rate. But I hope that if you get a chance to engage with the ideas in this book, you, you'll come to see that the fight for some of the most vulnerable is also a fight for all of us. Thank you very much indeed. So thanks, Dave. We've got a bit of time now. So what I think we'll do is I'm going to ask David two or three questions about the book. And then what we'll do is have a round of questions about the book and about the refugee issue. And then I'll ask Gabe some broader questions. And hopefully we'll have another round of questions then. But I want us to stick for the next kind of 15, 20 minutes to, uh, to what's in the book. So um, in a way, David, when you look at what's going on in the world, you can kind of see, can't you, at opposite ends of the spectrum. If you think of the West, you ended up by talking about the West, America and Germany in terms of their responses. You've been talking about interdependency as one of the characteristics of the modern world for a very, very long time. I mean, I remember you talking about that even before you were foreign secretary, that the interdependency was the critical thing to understand about the world. Where do you think is the debate, and it's a hard question, but globally, where is the debate around interdependency? What, should we be more encouraged by what Germany is trying to do or frightened by what Trump is trying to do? Where does it, where does it lie globally, this debate? Well, I think that... The, the sad or the, the striking truth is that if you read President Xi Jinping's speech to Davos last January, if you read his three hours and 23 minute uh, speech to the Congress of the Chinese Communist Party in October, what you see is an argument about the interdependence of the modern world and you see an argument about the capacity of people and governments to cooperate in a way that's a win for both. It's a positive sum game. Now, the striking thing about that argument is it's the argument that the originator of the interdependence thesis, John F. Kennedy, made in an article in Foreign Affairs in 1957. He came back from a world tour. He was a senator at the time. And he wrote that this is the age of interdependence. And the core argument he made was that it was in America's national interest as well as its moral interest to frame a positive sum game about the interdependent world that it was wrong to believe that America's gain meant someone else's 
lost. The expansion of freedom, he argued, was a gain for us all. The expansion of trade is, an, is a win for us all. He went through a range of other things. That is absolutely Xi Jinping's argument, and it is exactly the argument that President Trump opposes. The absolute core of his trade policy, climate policy, you name it, is a zero-sum game, not a positive-sum game. He's just pulled out of something, the UN Compact on Migration, which is a voluntary coordination mechanism among states they've just uh, pulled out of. And the justification for pulling out is that it's a threat to America because it's threatening to give them obligations that they would otherwise not have, and that is a threat. He sees that as a threat because he sees cooperation as a zero-sum uh, game. And so the state of the debate could not be more acute, could not be more dangerous, uh, because the status quo power in the world today is, is China. Uh, it's a very, very striking uh, situation. I've just, I spent a couple of days in Germany, I said to you, um, just on my way here. And the political institutions of the country are struggling in some ways with coalition formation, but they're very strong. And they are not just federal, they're national and local. They're consensus-based. They check executive power in a very, very striking and effective way. But Germany can't do it on its own. And one of the dangers of Brexit, obviously, is that it weakens the, it obviously tragically weakens the UK, but it also weakens the multilateral system. We can come back to that if necessary. You, you talked just there about, about, about the local. And one of the striking things about the discourse in America around a whole variety of issues, this issue, but also climate change, other questions, is that there's a, a difference between the approach that cities adopt, which is often quite progressive, and, and, and actually based upon the notion of cities being part of a global interdependency, and nation states. Is it the same in the refugee world? Is it that you get more progressive, more enlightened leadership at city level from mayors and others than you tend to see well, at national level? that's a great level? point, because it, people say, oh, well, Texas has banned Syrian refugees. Well, it's true that the governor of Texas did that, but the mayor of Houston, the mayor of Dallas, the mayor of Midland, Texas, says, no, we're, we're happy to take refugees. And it is a very striking thing. I, I genuinely don't have the answer to this, because it's got an exact parallel in Britain, which you will immediately recognize. Uh, the, 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 the places that are most fearful of refugees are those that have the fewest refugees. And... I don't know the answer to that. There's, a, there's an obvious parallel in the Brexit debate. Um, I think one of the most striking things I've learned living in the US, in the, there are 3,000 counties in the US. Those are administrative units. And they vary in size between 50 and 500,000 people. And of those 3,000, 2,425 voted by majority for President Trump. They represent... 36% of national income. So there are 575 counties that voted for Hillary Clinton. They account for 64% of national income. So you couldn't have a better example of the divorce of politics and economics than that statistic. And one of my reflections is that a significant part of the explanation of the crisis of, of the global system is that divorce between politics and economics, that what seems politically what is economically necessary is not politically feasible. And that's a, that statistic, I think, brings out the tension.
just finally on this uh, this part of the conversation, um, you, you've always been you know very interested in innovation. You didn't say much in your talk about technology. I wonder whether you're seeing technology starting to be uh, be interesting. I mean, one one knows about the importance of mobile telephony, for example, and its affordability uh, in developing parts of the world, and I guess in refugee camps, but also in new forms of kind of finance and, and stuff like that, use of drones in, in various circumstances. Do you see technology as opening up new possibilities? Well, I think that's a very interesting point. I mean, essentially, the digital revolution has not hit the humanitarian sector yet in a major way. Um, it really hasn't, partly because the sector is so busy chasing its tail that it's not doing the R&D that is necessary. We've had to set up our own R&D lab research and development um, center uh, which is using our 196 field sites to fast test, fast fail new uh, innovations in fields like intimate partner violence, malnutrition, cash delivery. We're trying to innovate. Uh, but let me just say something that I think is really important in this. There's a danger of thinking that there's a technological, a high-tech solution to problems that actually need human interaction. Let me just give you a really powerful example. Maybe I'm preaching to the converted on this, but I just think the example is an interesting one because it says a lot about the way the IRC works. Um, we know that pneumonia is a terrible killer for the people that we serve, especially for the kids. And uh, alongside malaria, as big. And we found uh, that, uh, I think it was the World Health Organization, but the, alarms had been distributed to parents and nurses that would go off after a minute. And the idea was that they would count the number of breaths of a child, and they would know if it was 40 breaths for a young child or 60 breaths for an old child, that would show that there was a pneumonia present. And the detection rate was 22%. And the reason why the detection rate was 22% in the sample that we did was because uh, most of the people who worked for us and were the, expected to use these alarms weren't able to count to 40 or 60 and also weren't able to remember the 40 or 60 uh, cutoff. So our team designed um, a, a, a necklace where you simply move a bead for every breath and the beads then change color when you reach 40 or 60. And then there's color-coded medicine that goes with the beads. And we managed to raise the detection rate of pneumonia from 22% to 66% by that intervention. And so I definitely embrace your thought that the technological revolution hasn't yet hit. It's got potential to be transformatively powerful for us, as long as we don't think there's a technological solution to every issue. So another example, we use the new technology quite a lot to train the teachers that do our teaching. But for the kids, what they need more than anything else is personal contact. And we actually invest in people rather than in machines for the learning that needs to take place. Thank you. Let's just take a round of questions focusing particularly on these issues of uh, humanitarian aid and refugees and those things, uh, these questions. There's two people here and uh, somebody there. So let's just take this, this round of, of three. Yeah. Um, within that uh, group of very vulnerable, I'm more concerned also with a smaller set perhaps, and that's the disabled, physically and mentally, especially with issues that get overlooked in the West from special needs children's education as well as even dementia. What kind of work is being done in the humanitarian sector for this special group? 
Hold on to that question, Dave. We'll get the other two. Yeah, back row. Thank you. Uh, with refugees both in Europe and here for the last 25 years. And when I was in Westminster, I chaired the Vietnamese Boat People Committee. Uh, that was resolved, of course, uh, because we had the Geneva Agreement where countries took certain numbers. Uh, is that solution now beyond our grasp because of the greater numbers involved or the lack of political will, or is that something we should strive for again? And then there's somebody in the back row in the middle. Oh, sorry, yes, you, you sorry, and then we'll take the person in the back row. Yeah, go on. Thank you, David, for the talk. It was great. Um, linking to, to Matthew's question on technology, there's a discussion starting about the universal basic income and, and how it might replace jobs which are, which are done away with by technology, which is introduced by Googles and Facebook and so on, and that the money should come from, from their profits. Do you see any, any op opportunity for getting companies like that to start recognizing their responsibility, which may not be direct, but indirect, in terms of helping you get cash to, to the refugees, as you said, was a priority earlier on. Thanks. And then, yeah, the back. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, regarding the financing, so you talked about, um, I mean, this is a, you're presenting it as a humanitarian problem, but we've got protracted displacement. So what is it that governments can do to shift the financing where we have annual budgetary cycles um, to recognize that you know we need to shift this from your 500 you know short grants that are averaging less than a year to something that is multi-year um, and we can you know meet the protracted needs so it's, it's a development context we're using humanitarian funding for great so it's uh, yeah uh, so uh, first question i mean shockingly little i think is the answer to your question Interestingly enough, the camp settings give more opportunity to do the most basic things for physical disabilities, but mental health is massively neglected among the young and among the old. Uh, in the urban settings, you've got a much less captive population, huge levels of uh, neglect. And so I think it's a very um, unsatisfactory story that uh, there are one of the things about the humanitarian sector is there are, I'm sure there are, there, there are brilliant programs, but they're not taken to scale. And so I, I, we could, I could show you different aspects of help for different groups, but it's a very tragic story, really uh, very, very dispiriting story. Um, just to Keith uh, Best, who, who rightly referenced his own work over 25 years, which has been very much longer than, than me, um, and the closest we've got to the Geneva distribution argument is the argument that's going on within the European Union at the moment, uh, which is an argument that is, I'm afraid, pitting East and West Europe against each other in quite a fundamental way. And of course, is confused is the wrong word, but is overlain by an argument that I glossed over, or a point I'm, I glossed over significantly in my remarks, which is that you'll often hear terms of refugee and asylum seeker. And in crude terms, you could say, well, they're the same because they're both fleeing persecution. The, the test that a refugee places and the test an asylum seeker has for granting uh, status is that they can't safely be returned home. But of course, the big difference is that a refugee 
is given refugee status in the first country that they land in. An asylum seeker is someone who comes to a third country and is then seeking asylum status once they've arrived. And that's why it's, to be absolutely accurate, one would say that Germany is processing over a million asylum claims, and it's going to grant asylum status to probably half of those people. Uh, Jordan, it's accepted a million refugees. Now, the argument within uh, Europe suggests that it's the political will rather than the model that's at fault. Europe has, the European Union has failed to agree amongst the 28 members how to distribute the asylum claimants around the European Union. It also has a pitiful refugee resettlement program. Refugee resettlement, remember, is the, the planned and organized transfer of people from Jordan or Lebanon, Ethiopia or Kenya to a European Union country or to a, another signatory to the uh, UN Convention. And the year before last, it was 9,000. Last year, it was 13,000 refugees who are on this organized transfer. Now, the good news is that, uh, and by the way, that legal route to hope is absolutely key to have a slightest cat in hell's chance of taking on the people smugglers who, in the absence of that route, will say to people, well, look, you've got no chance of getting out of your situation through legal means, so give me your money and I'll get you there through illegal uh, means. I don't pretend that refugee resettlement is a silver bullet to take on the people smugglers, but without that, you're really stuck. Now, the European Union has done, the European Parliament has done something quite interesting. It's voted that 20% um, of, of refugee resettlement, of those identified for refugee resettlement, and the UN has identified about 8% of the total number of, asylum, of uh, refugees as, as the most vulnerable who are appropriate for resettlement, the European, Union has, the European Parliament has said that the European Union should take 20% um, of them. And it's now going into a debate with the Council of Ministers about that aggregate figure and also about the distribution within the uh, European Union. And there are some real, uh, there are some st star countries in there, and some of them not the most obvious ones. Ireland, a good example of a country that per head of population takes refugees on the resettlement route. But it's a political uh, problem above all. But the point I make to Europeans of which I include myself one, and I include all of us as being Europeans, for the, certainly for the moment, um, the choice for Europe is either disorganized, illegal, unregulated movement of people, or managed and regulated movement of people. It's not a choice of people coming or people not coming. And that's the way I think we have to frame this politically. Um, you, yeah. And also, the, and, also yeah, look, the, the, I'm all in favor of global yeah, look, cooperation. There's a massive agenda, which we never tackled when we were in government, about the corporate taxation agenda, both nationally and internationally. I'm all in favor of uh, everything that can be done to make sure companies pay their appropriate tax. I'm also interested in hypothecated taxation, not necessarily for, not most obviously for refugee uh, purposes. Um, although it'd be kind of interesting to have a levy on global plane flights or something that uh, recognize the, the global public good of countries that are hosting refugees. But I'm, I'm all with you on the, um, on the effective taxation. On, on the UBI, on the universal basic income, I, I tell you, I'm so struck. Uh, the people who we work for, the adults who we work for, they, they really want to work. They like it when we give them cash, but above all, they want to work. And the dignity that comes from work and from contribution is a very, very powerful human motivator. So, I mean, uh, maybe I'm popular to say it, but I'm, I'm not sort of rushing to sign up to the UBI thing just yet. Um, and then the um, uh, final question was about the, the structuring of the financing. We've got to think about the financing in a completely different way. There's an interesting argument. Could you have some kind of insurance or social impact bond 
in the refugee and displacement space, some kind of, you know, could Uganda have insured itself against the displacement of South Sudanese as a result, as a result of conflict? Um, there's then the next stage of the argument is what's the macroeconomic support for refugee hosting countries? Um, and that's an IMF um, World Bank question. The World Bank president doing a lot of interesting thinking in this area to, so that his mandate is expanded to work in middle-income countries. Uh, and then you come to the aid question. And the aid question has uh, got to be more long-term grants and more long-term accountability with clear outcomes for what we deliver. And I I'm uh, shocked, really, uh, that in the humanitarian aid sector, there's an absence of outcomes, an absence of evidence about what really works, uh, an absence of R&D. And those are three things that we're really fighting for very, very hard. First of all, fixing our own systems, but then trying to export that around the, uh, around the humanitarian sector. Um, just on the UBI issue, uh, I, I should say this because we're big champions of it, there's, there is a kind of division in the UBI world between those who say it's an alternative to work and kind of premise a kind of a, you know, a utopian world of, of leisure or idleness. And there's a, another account, which is our account, which is that UBI is a much more flexible form of, form of welfare, which enables people to deal with the rapidly changing labor market and actually strengthens labor in, uh, work incentives because of course people don't lose it when they get a job well, whereas this gives me a, a, a wonderful opportunity to do something which uh, we don't often do enough I, i've known matthew for 25 years and from the first time i met him he was my teacher as well as my friend and you've just seen a very very good example <laughs> about why he is my teacher as well as my uh, friend. I, um, that, that's a very, very interesting point. As always, he's read or written the paper that I should have read to educate me uh, better on this. At the background. But, uh, <laughs> he is a genuine uh, polymath. What he has done with the RSA is fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And he is, I really, really admire not just what you've done here, but your British and global contribution in government, in opposition it's really nice to be able to uh, in, are, you, when, are you worried about the other questions when we were in opposition <laughs> no i'm just really it, 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 tragically people don't spend enough don't do this enough and i i i am um, really pleased to have the opportunity to say how how much i admire what you teach me every time i stand on a public platform and you expose how little i know so uh, <laughs> Well, thank you for that. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm genuinely... Now, on my, on my notes here, it says Conversation TBC, uh, and that doesn't actually stand for To Be Continued. It stands for the three issues I'm going to ask you about. Um, uh, if the Arizona election goes the way that I think it's going to go next week, it looks as though it's going to go next week, it seems to me that things in America reach a different level because at the moment there's a lot of conversation about will this be proven against President Trump, will that be proven against President Trump? But if the outcome in Arizona is what we think it's going to be, what it suggests is it doesn't matter what is found to be true about the president. Americans will say, or the Americans who voted for him would say, we would rather have anybody who is in our camp than anybody else who is in the other camp. And that seems to me to get things to a state which, well, we were talking about before, this is kind of what you expect from failed democracies, you know, where people say, well, as long as the person's my tribe, I don't care who they are. Am I being too bleak in seeing it like that? Well, I, I, no, you're not. I think that there is a, it can sound portentous or pompous or just out of touch, but the, 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 the economic crisis of liberal democracies is matched by a political crisis of liberal democracies. And I, 
even if it's not true, it's better to err on the side of worry about that issue than it is on overconfidence. Now, it's a striking thing about the US. The parties are, in some ways, the weakest political parties in the Western world, yet it's the strongest two-party system. It's incredible that there's no third or fourth or fifth parties. Secondly, more people are disaffected and complaining about the two parties uh, than in most other countries, but the level of, quote-unquote, tribalism or support is incredibly high among certain uh, sections of the population. But the most uh, chilling and terrifying aspects are two parts of the, of the American discourse. One is the balkanization of discussion, debate, and news so that you only listen to or talk to people who already agree with you, uh, which is terrifying, um, really. And secondly, uh, the quote-unquote alternative facts. Well, you know, you, uh, um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the senator from New York, um, he once said, you're entitled to your own opinions, you're not entitled to your own facts. Well, we're now in a world where it is averred that you are entitled to your own uh, facts. And that speaks to a real crisis of the whole idea that democratic debate is founded on facts and people argue about the different judgments or different uh, priorities that you place. And it's easy to sound like a sort of vicar rubbing one's hands saying how terrible it is, but I think it is, um, it is dangerous. And I, I think that the if there was an American on the, I mean, there must be Americans in the audience who will say, look, the checks and balances of our system are stronger than anywhere else. And I worry that there is a complacency about those checks and balances. I mentioned to Matthew, the, um, the tax bill that has just been published included um, amendments that had not been shown to senators but were written in hand on the final act that went through. And if that happened in a quote-unquote third world country, you'd say, it's a, well, you'd say something rude about it. And uh, I, I worry that about that. Notwithstanding the fact there's incredible journalism going on, there's strength in the courts, there's a whole set of other estimates. But if you remember that, um, that book um, by Michael Sandel's Spheres of Justice, he says, look, the great danger is that wealth inequality corrodes and uh, overflows over into other uh, parts of, uh, of life. The great danger now is that it actually overwhelms the bulwarks of a, a constitutional republic. And the difference between a constitutional republic and a system of parliamentary sovereignty is that in a constitutional republic, the ends do not justify the means. And America was set up to constrain executive power. And many of us may have looked at it over the years and thought, well, hang on, it's a conspiracy against governments being able to do things. But actually, it was also a defense of the rights of the individual and uh, in contrast to the parliamentary systems. And, and if, if it becomes the case that the ends do justify the means, that is the route to hell. And I think that the essence of liberal democracy is to, is to uphold the idea that there are individual human rights, that there are checks and balances, there are processes that have to be defended. There's so much there that we could talk further about, but I'm, I've, got, I've done tea, I'm on to B. Um, I, I think we all know your views about Brexit. What do you think, as an outside, you know, partly as an outsider now, what, how do you think this is going to play out? What's your sense? Gordon Brown was predicting a few weeks ago that we would reach a kind of moment in the spring of crisis when people became absolutely clear of, about what was likely to happen, about the fact that many of the things they might have hoped would come out of this weren't going to come out of it. 
But the discourse about this does not seem to be like America, not as bad, but, but nearly as bad sometimes it feels. It's not a discourse of people asking themselves tough questions, saying things are different to what they thought they were, what do we do, but people getting ever more entrenched and hostile to each other. So what do, what do, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, that is a great question, and what I have learned in America is that when people say that is a great question, that means they don't know the answer. And so obviously <laughs> I, uh, I don't know the answer. Um, look, I think there's a couple of things I would say that are relevant to the question. I don't think they answer the question. One is that never, ever underestimate the unbelievable stupidity of the premature triggering of the Article 50 process. I mean, just remember, I, I uh, was Foreign Secretary when we brought in the Lisbon Treaty, which had the Article 50. Um, never in my wildest dreams, I remember having this conversation in my office because it was the first time the European Union had ever allowed a country to leave. And I remember having the conversation with my civil service team about well, no country would ever trigger this until they're absolutely sure that they know how they want to leave. Because once you trigger Article 50, you give away your last card. Um, second uh, thing that's relevant uh, to this, I think, is that the problems that you've seen in on what's called the quote-unquote Irish question over the last two or three days, it's easy to blame them on the incompetence of the government. And in many ways, the government have been incredibly incompetent. But I would plead with people to understand that the problems that you're seeing in the debate between the Irish government, the DUP, and the Tories at the moment, they are not incidental to Brexit. They are integral to Brexit. They are built... The, the, the strife that you're seeing on that border question is inbuilt to dozens, if not hundreds, of questions that are core to the Brexit point. Thirdly, and maybe rather contrary to the tone of voice I've used in the last two minutes, the only way I think to um, process this is by saying to people, look, we have not forsaken all of our agency in this process. We are, democracy did not die on the 23rd of June 2016. It's not a sin to think and change your mind. Uh, I, I like to use this example of how in New York, if you order a meal and there's anything wrong with it, you send it back. But in Britain, if you order a meal, there's kind of a, you pick up your knife and fork and you start picking at the side of it and you feel that you're honor-bound to eat it, even though you have reason to believe it may be rancid in one way or another. And that sort of British stiff upper lip has its values and its uses. But in this area, it shouldn't stop us saying, putting our knife and fork down and saying, hang on, we haven't left yet. We're allowed to scrutinize. We're allowed to ask what Brexit is, because in the referendum campaign that didn't come out, uh, and I don't know how this will end up. I, I know my preferences, my, uh, my, my greatest preference, is that Parliament decides that the final deal is put to the people for them to compare in a mature way. I don't think it can be... You can't roll back Brexit with having... The people having voted for something, for it, you can't roll it back without asking them. I think that risks a, a great democratic crisis. But if that's not possible, then... Parliament has a duty, I think, to protect the nation. And protecting the nation means the closest possible relationship with the European 
union. But I, I, I do think this is, I feel that 40 years of my life have been shaped, more, 44 years of my life have been shaped by the momentous decision to join. And the next 40 years, God willing that I have it, it will be shaped by a decision to leave. And so the stakes couldn't be higher, really. When we met, uh, now we're moving on to the sea of TBC. Now, when we met um, in 1993-4, we had a very uh, weak government and a cabinet riven by conflict over Europe. So it's nice to see that some things <laughs> have a consistency to them. Uh, and also, the Labour Party had a healthy lead in the polls. Um, now, but that is where the similarities end, of course. What's your view? Most people now, I think, would say that it's likely that the next government in this country will be a Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn. I'm interested in your thoughts as to how do you view that prospect and what advice... I'm not sure how often Jeremy rings you up for advice, but uh, if, if he were to ring you for advice, what would you be advising well, him I, now? My reflection is that the last 100 yards or 500 yards or 1,000 yards to government are the hardest yards. I'm not saying it's easy to get to 40% in, in, in a general election. It's hard. And so there's credit for uh, Jeremy Corbyn, for the Labour Party, for getting to 40%. Having said that, going there are no prizes for coming second and the uh, the um the next step to go from being second to being first is uh, much longer than it looks the the scrutiny the care the attention the um uh, the concern of voters is much greater if they think they're electing a government rather than electing an opposition and i think that the the, the biggest learn the biggest things we did right in the 90s were to really think hard about the strategic interests of the country. It's tempting in politics to think a lot about what you believe. That's essential, I would argue. It's tempting to spend inordinate amounts of time trying to figure out what the public believe. That, I think, is um, potentially the route to destruction if you spend too much time doing that. Uh, but thirdly, really thinking hard about what the country needs. Because if, if there's an election in four years' time, the next parliament will run till 2027. That's 10 years from now. And it's going to be a different world as well as a different Britain. And thinking hard about what will be a policy and political agenda that's appropriate to that period is a huge task. And one of the reflections I've given about what Jeremy Corbyn has done, he's got the sunny optimism that you need in politics. You've got to be able to... to have perspective and look on the bright side. You've also got to be able to surround yourself with people who disagree with you as well as people who agree with you. Because that is the test of leadership. Because, and that's the way to test your mettle. And I think that, that that's the process that the country needs to go through and that obviously Labour needs to go through uh, too. And I, I would say that, I mean, you can, you can take what I say with a pinch of salt, since I neither predicted Brexit nor Trump nor the uh, general election, so I uh, say this with due uh, humility. Um, but anyone who tells you they know that Labour's bound to win the next election uh, is making too many assumptions, in my view. I think we're in a very open season. So uh, I've not chaired very well because we've almost run out of time. So what Maybe I'm I've spoken for too no, long. No, 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 no. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, um, in, on, uh, rather than opening it out to the audience, I'm going to ask the question that I suspect if I was to poll the entire audience, they'd most want me to ask of you. Uh, um, and I, I, can, well, I, tell, I can tell I I'm right. I think it's right. two, two o'clock, so uh, <laughs> off we go. Um, 
did do you, Safe David, do you, do you envisage time. any circumstances in which you would re-enter the British political scene? Well, look, the, 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 the answer to that... Am is, I right uh, in thinking that's the question? Yes, right. <laughs> well, it's... it's, it's you. It's very nice that people uh, ask me that, at least those who, who want a positive answer, it's nice that they ask that. <laughs> the, um, what I have to say is I feel an enormous sense of privilege in having done what I've been doing for the last four years. I feel a sense of responsibility, but also genuine privilege to have led this uh, extraordinary organization, extraordinary uh, group of people. It's been a learning experience for me to be the CEO of a large um, organization. Uh, it's been a huge challenge. And obviously, any career decisions I make, I've, got, I've first of all got to think about my family, but I've also got to think, where am I going to make the greatest contribution? And in the end, that's the test I always apply. I probably shouldn't say this, but I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I know what I'll be asking myself uh, before I decide, and that is, where can I make the greatest impact? Where can I make the greatest contribution to the things that I believe in? The, the only thing I would say to people, and I'd say to you as well, it's tempting to say, oh, you know, come back, re-enter. You, you can't... You, you, the country's changed a lot. Politics has changed a lot. Things move on. You've got to be thinking, what are you going to do in the next period, not what you've, what have you done in the last period? And I think that that's the humility that I have to bring into this. Uh, I think that the, the dynamics of modern politics have changed enormously, uh, even in the last uh, five years. And this is a, pro a time when you have to spend time thinking and learning, as well as... Um, trying to make decisive decisions. So I, I, I can only tell you the truth. I don't know what I'm going to be doing uh, next. What I know is that I want to do something that really has uh, traction and impact and leverage on things that I uh, care about. And those are obviously global things, but they're also British things. This, uh, I said to someone the other day that this whole idea that because you uh, live or work abroad or because you think about the rest of the world, that makes you a citizen of nowhere. I don't buy that at all. I'm. Uh, as British and patriotically British as I've ever been. And uh, that seems to me to be completely, not just compatible, but integral to thinking about how this country and its people fit in with the rest of the world. And to the extent that I can do things globally or locally that make a difference to that, then so much the better. And I know you've never really given up on being Arsenal manager, have you? <laughs> uh, um, no, I'm still waiting. You know, you're a great campaigner, Matthew, but your campaign on this particular uh, <laughs> topic has not yet borne the fruit that I would uh, hope. Well, you certainly have a great future as a writer, judging by, by, by the book. Um, uh, it, it might sound like a kind of flippant thing to say about a book which is about an incredibly serious subject, which is both enlightened and enlightening, but I can't think of a better stocking fuller at Christmas than a copy of, of, of Rescue signed by its author. David has very kindly agreed to, to stay around for a few more minutes and sign copies of the book, which are available outside. I strongly encourage you to buy it. It's a, it's a brilliant book and will help you understand the issues that David covered at the beginning, but as I'm sure you'd agree, you only went over the surface of what the book covers in much greater depth. So uh, do get a copy of the book, but uh, it just remains for me now to ask you to join me in thanking David Miliband. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.